Hello, my name's Alistair McClellan. I'm the editor of HSJ. Welcome to the HSJ webinar on uh, industry and NHS collaboration during the pandemic period. There have been many astonishing things that have happened during this uh, testing and trying period for the country and for the NHS. One of the most striking has been the way in which the pharmaceutical and medical devices industries have worked together with the NHS to uh, address a series of challenges. A whole set of bureaucratic and cultural barriers have been removed to really increase the speed of collaboration between the service and uh, the two industries. We wanted to explore it, this in more depth, so we've convened this webinar. Joining me today, I have uh, Chris Hopson, Chief Executive of NHS Providers, who has been much about during these past few months, uh, representing the views of the service. Uh, we have Hugo Breeder, who is the UK Managing Director of Johnson & Johnson's Medical Devices, and Dr Raj Siruthan, who is the UK Medical Director of Roche. So what I'm going to do is to ask... Uh, all three of our participants to give a very short two, three minute overview of what they've seen and experienced about how things have changed over the last three months or so. Uh, uh, and I may ask them uh, some questions after that, and then we're going to get into a discussion. So, uh, Rav, you're gonna kick us off. Please take us away. Great, thanks, Alistair. Okay, so um, the, this unprecedented pandemic led to a truly collaborative effort to beat COVID-19 that was delivered in partnership to meet the NHS needs and those of its patients. This effort began for us in March 2020 when at WASH we saw the emergence of signals from Wuhan relating to the use of one of our medicines, tocilizumab, in COVID-19 patients. There were three key learns from this collaborative effort for us across uh, the time period the first area was partnering with a focus on patient outcomes, Alistair. So why did that happen? I, I think it happened because we had a shared common goal that we all agreed on. Our first shared common goal was that the use of unproven medicines off-label was not in the interests of patients. That was outlined in a Joint Chief Medical Officer letter that was issued to all trusts in April, and we supported that. Next was the speed of essence as the pandemic progressed at pace across the United Kingdom. I've never seen a closer collaboration in my 30 odd years of working in the NHS or in the private sector. Um, and this was uh, specifically at a trust level uh, and an academic level, such as the recovery trial, which was carried out at Oxford University in collaboration with the pharmaceutical industry. The second area is how we collaborated further to limit the indirect consequences of COVID-19, probably an area that Chris will be closer to. An area of risk here is how do we ensure clinical trials in the UK are not left behind those of other countries? Uh, now, obviously, that's a large part of Roche's portfolio of uh, medicines are in oncology, so cancer treatment. And we've seen a trend already that there were a delayed number of cancer trials um, that were started either before the pandemic or they're either on hold uh, or they're delayed and new trials are not starting. This trend is different in the UK than in other countries. Just one stat for you, for example, 16.8% of UK sites aren't allowing any visits and that's 7% globally. So how can we partner here with the clinical research networks, with academia, the NHS Trust, to ensure these necessary resources are put in place? And for thirdly and finally, how do we get confidence back for patients to engage um, in the NHS and in hospitals? Here, I think there are clear areas that the pharmaceutical industry can partner with the NHS on. Can we see, for instance, treatments that were traditionally delivered in hospitals and in a hospital setting delivered cl closer to a patient's home? In fact, in home, given home care. Now, a very close subject to my heart is the issue, obviously, of diversity and inclusion. And that's been at the forefront of our minds, obviously, over the last month. Now, I worry that there may be a specific issue uh, with confidence in the service, which we saw emerge with the pandemic, with the disproportionate impact of BAME, um, people affected by COVID-19. Now, I see that in my industry, too, because that group is underrepresented in clinical trials. So ultimately, really, how do we collaborate further to meet the needs of the NHS and its patients and embed these learnings, Alistair, from the pandemic would be uh, uh, an area that I know that we're all focusing on at the moment.
Thank you, Ralph. Can I just ask you to comment briefly on the cultural changes you have seen in the way in which the service and uh, the industry sector have been collaborating? Because that has been one of the most striking things, uh, I think, during this period. And I know you've been involved in various discussions, which some of which may be uh, private, of course. But I just wonder if you give a sense of, 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 of how much more efficiently you think uh, the two sectors have worked together uh, 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 and whether or not how much of this is just a product surely of the emergency that we faced at the particular time and how much might be preser preserved. So just give us your sense of what's happened and what, what's felt different about the last three, um, uh, three months. Alison, no, I completely agree that, um, I mean, the word unprecedented has been used probably far too many times in this pandemic. The, the, the biggest learn for us was um, everyone, um, because of the pandemic setting, was willing to collaborate in a, speedly, a, a speedy time period. So things that would take three to six months were happening in three and a half days. I'll give you a good example. Um, we were running a number of trials. Um, very well known as the recovery trial, which read out a result last week in COVID-19 with a positive result for uh, an older drug, dexamethasone. Um, to get that trial approved um, and to be part of it would have taken, for instance, um, three to six months. Um, the MHRA were aligned, um, the trusts were aligned and the ethics committees were aligned. And those time periods were down to days. I mean, literally three to four days. So I think it was... Um, a both a collaboration that was driven by the pandemic and the speed that was needed, but the fact that everyone was available. And then, then another trend you were seeing is, as we're doing today, everyone was avail available digitally. So it wasn't go down to London. It wasn't all wait for people's diaries to open up. It literally was jump on these calls. Let's get everyone together in the same setting, in the same place in a, a Zoom or a Hangout, and let's get things done. So I think those two those two learnings are th something that I think we can embed going further forward. Thank you very much, Rav. Hugo, over to you. Hi, Alistair. Well, just building uh, further upon what Rav was saying, also in the medical devices industry, we saw unprecedented uh, level of collaboration with the NHS uh, at the outbreak of COVID-19. And maybe I, I pick out just one domain and that of uh, providing digital assets to the NHS. I think uh, often um, digital was the only way to uh, reach out, uh, diagnose, engage, even treat patients. Uh, I think we saw an, uh, an acceleration in the way uh, and openness from NHS to uh, embrace these digital technologies. And maybe I, I pick out uh, one example uh, the setup of uh, of trauma centers, which is something that need to ha needed to happen uh, in a very short time frame. Eh? So it was about weeks or often e even days for the setup of these centers. Um, we as industry, we have delivered a lot of uh, digital assets, technologies, and, and to name out one, uh, SPI, J&J a, a technology, which is a kind of uh, GPS uh, for uh, ORs, but can also use uh, outside OR, is a system, a digital asset that uh, guides medical staffs through new protocols or old protocols. But in this case, you often have people that have to work together in a different physical location on different kind of protocols. So helping that run smoothly uh, with a fast learning curve, I think industry delivering digital technologies to the NHS was a great example on how together we, we tackled emergency situations like the example of setting up a trauma center in, in just a couple of days. Thanks, Hugo. Um, I, I'm very interested about these these trauma centres because I must admit, until um, uh, uh, we began prepare, preparing for this webinar, I wasn't aware of the, uh, of the role that the medical devices sector had played in setting up the, the trauma centres. Again, a bit like the question I asked Rav, because I think 
one of the things we really want to unwrap in this webinar is what can we keep from this period? What, 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 was, what, what ways of working, which have allowed us to do things so much quick, more quickly, can we preserve? So what were some good examples of the contribution you made to setting up these trauma centres that, that simply wouldn't have happened in the way that they happened uh, um, uh, before the pandemic struck? Well, you saw that because of the emergency situation, people uh, go much faster to the heart of the matter. Eh? We need to set up a trauma centre. It's, it's a nightmare, of course, just from a logistic point of view. I, I don't know if you can imagine what's, what comes to such a thing as yeah, setting up uh, a trauma center, just all, all the products, the logistics, the patient flow, that, that must be different, different people that have to work together. And, and that, of course, uh, producing safe surgery with good outcomes. Uh, typically, that takes sometimes years of, of meetings to, to do any changes. And now the openness to implement something new, innovative, what was just there. Uh, there was seemed to be also more uh, confidence in, in each other. Uh, maybe also from our point, uh, point as, as industry. Um, but I think that that's the way forward. And, and with having now digital in, in that environment, you also have uh, uh, big data uh, because you, you track, you trace, you measure, so you can learn fast. So you can also quickly see for this situation, for instance, what, what, what is working, what is not working, what can, can we do better, how can we accelerate, how can we improve, how can we make things efficient. And, and for me, that's if I link that to existing initiatives, so take, for instance, uh, the whole uh, GERFT, getting it right first time, uh, which is about uh, data and efficiency and improving, well, I think that, that this is the way forward for uh, the NHS and for industry like to work together based upon data points to treat more patients in a more safe and efficient way. Thank you very much, Hugo. Chris, your, your view, please. Well, I think, Alistair, we'd all agree that the NHS did something quite extraordinary in, in the first peak in terms of, I mean, we've described it in a number of different ways. Um, one of my favourite phrases is we completely shifted shape. We almost kind of turned the whole service on its head uh, and created 33,000 beds to treat coronavirus patients. Um, and we moved at a speed which was just, you know, something we've never, ever done before. And what's really striking for me is that when I talk to the chief executives and the, and the leadership teams of the trial, that we represent, you just kind of got that sense of um, sort of three or four things. First of all, real, real focus on a single objective and being empowered to just get on with it and make it happen. Secondly, and I think both Rav and Hugo have put this up really well, is the need to move at speed. But, but again, what really, really struck me as people kind of encountered problem after problem, it was very clear to us that the reason they overcame those problems is because of the quality of the partnerships they built. And in a sense, it gives me an opportunity to say, you know, a very big thank you to all the commercial partners without whom we wouldn't have been able to achieve what was achieved. And, you know, a huge range of people. Oxygen system suppliers was a very good example for us where effectively people were having to really do some pretty extraordinary things to ensure oxygen supply was available at real, real pace, right the way through to pharmaceuticals, medical devices. It was right the way across the board. And what you just kind of got the sense of was people having to really solve things very, very fast, but realizing they could only do that if they did that in partnership with the commercial sector. And I think it worked incredibly well. Chris, one of the things, one of the, uh, for the 18 odd years that I've um, uh, uh, done this job, uh, whenever I've um, chaired similar meetings, the issue that comes up uh, time and time again is that of a question of trust between the NHS and uh, the pharmaceutical sector and the sometimes uneasy relationship uh, 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 b b b between the two. I think on a sort of, if you like, a technical level or a, a scientific level, there is a, there has always been an awareness that both parties need each other. But there has been long been uh, concern on behalf of the industry, 
that it is not trusted by um, by the NHS for a whole range of reasons, uh, and within the NHS, a concern that they're uh, that if they work too closely with industry, they'll be getting themselves into something that perhaps they shouldn't or they couldn't get themselves out of, or that they might end up being told off by a regulator or a politician. Has what we have seen, so one of the questions we're all asking ourselves is how much of this change, shift to digital um, service delivery, for example, how much of this will continue after the pandemic period? On that issue of culture, which seems to me all of the technical issues aside, the one uh, uh, persistent issue for the last how many odd decades, I'm wondering whether you think that there has been a shift in people's attitudes uh, during this period on behalf of the uh, NHS. And I'll ask Hugo and Rav if, if, if they think that is the same with the injury side, or is it just a, a moment in time that is gonna blow away? Well, I think it's very difficult to tell at this point, but I mean, the observation I would make is, as you were asking the first bit of your question, the phrase that propped into my mind was need must. Uh, I think, you know, people can, chief executives kept describing themselves to me as serial problem solvers. They basically had to solve really big complex problems at speed. And they knew very quickly that they couldn't solve them unless they brought in appropriate external expertise. So all of the things that you describe, which I recognize about building trust over time and being very careful about some of the regulatory stuff etc needs must meant that you had to move at real real pace and you had to make it work because if you didn't then effectively you wouldn't be able to you know provide the service that you wanted to i i i think the culture and the psychological thing i think is a really interesting uh, thing for me I, I do think one of the things I kind of um, I definitely pick up is and this, this is kind of a fairly well-known phenomenon that if you work closely with somebody during a period of extreme stress you tend to build a quality of relationship that then sticks for a long time and again I'm very again this might be sound a bit weird but I'm very struck by when you talk to people in the military who've gone through things like Afghanistan about the, the bonds that get built between soldiers serving together um, you know that they last a lifetime. And I suppose my observation would be, if you're looking on the positive side, it was very clear to me that some really deep relationships were built at real pace, because our chief execs were incredibly grateful to, uh, uh, for the way in which, you know, their commercial suppliers were prepared to mobilize at extreme speed, and in a sense, kind of work with the same intensity and at the same pace. And my hope would be that some of those relationships forged, if you don't mind, if you don't mind me calling this in the kind of, you know, the heat of battle, I think there's quite a good chance they'll, they'll last longer and just one final observation is um again one of the phrases of the moment is we're never going back we're not going back to where we were before and for example the stuff about for example the way in which we've taken um uh, outpatient uh, appointments and consultations online, I cannot believe we'll go back. Uh, I mean, my kind of sense is people recognise that's a change that, you know, absolutely they shouldn't let go. So my hope is in quite a lot of these areas, people won't let go of it and they'll fight very hard to keep them. So Hugo, let me come to you and ask you that similar question. Um, do you think, <clears throat> pardon me, that there has been a, a sea change in the in in that culture of trust uh you know um has the suspicion from the set uh, from the nhs sector gone uh, and i suppose both for hugo and rav to reflect of i'm interested in what you detect the view of the nhs but also the view of the various regulators whether they too are uh, whether they too are forging you're forging bonds with them during this period that perhaps will mean uh, we could, for example, see the faster introduction of innovative uh, medicines and, and technologies in, in the future. Hugo, what's your, what's your take on it? So, yes, I, like Chris said, I also saw from our side that uh, that increased trust level. Of course, this was in a moment of high need. Eh? So for, for me, I really hope that we, uh, we keep much of that atmosphere and that with that we make now the real step to like a value-based relationship and too often we were seen like or we were forced in a relationship of of uh, suppliers and buyers of of simply products 
I think we are proving here as an industry that we can bring value and that it's, it's better for also the NHS to work together on, on outcomes, on projects, on, on, on value, on entire patient pathways. Then we as an industry can deliver so much more to the NHS and be of so, such much more value. And you saw that also in the whole topic of products that are only available and manufactured outside Europe. Uh, yeah, you want to buy it, you run into trouble. If you intensely work together with trusted partners, you can achieve so much more. And, and yes, we saw this from our part now during the, the emergency situation. But if I look ahead, the challenges are there to stay eh? because the waiting lists were already all time high before the outbreak. We're trending now to, what is it? 10 million patients on the waiting list for end of the year. So it will be even more important to be more trusted partners and to work together on specific projects like tackling waiting lists. Okay, Hugo, let me press you a little bit on the regulatory side. Uh, and whether or not, um, because obviously this is many of the things that you have need to do, you and Rav and other people that have needed regulatory people to say, yeah, that's okay, get on with it. And uh, normally that can take a long time and there are good reasons why it has typically taken a long time. Um, I'm just interested in uh, how much this period has actually shown that these things don't need to take that amount of time and that that penny may have dropped uh, 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 with, uh, uh, with regulators. So Hugo, give me a view on that and then Rav, I'll come to you. Yeah, I think on the medical, the pharmaceutical side, uh, I'll let Rav comment on, on that. Eh? Uh, for us, maybe I go back to the, the digital aspect. And so typically for digital innovation, there are all kinds of reasons not to do it or slow it down and and every trust has and on top of that its own regulations and it's it's often a nightmare for us to bring any digital innovation so many regulations so many people to talk to and at the end it, it takes ages to bring any innovation effectively in the market and now we saw that suddenly yeah it was just in a couple of days you could uh, solve these kind of uh, problems or barriers and, and have something effectively installed, implemented in a specific uh, hospital or, or trust and, and simply working and providing immediate value. Thank you. Rav, give us your, your, your experience about how much the culture uh, uh, has changed. Uh, so it's going to build on something Chris said. Um, I spent a bit of my life as a as an A and E uh, registrar, uh, and what what I learned there as a uh, as a reg was um, you've got to be transparent and you've got to share all the information you have at the same time because you don't know what's happening in one bay versus another bay because you're moving constantly between them. So what we learned in a, in very real time was that the relationships had to change to your point, Alistair. So we saw a signal coming out of Wuhan. I mentioned that earlier. That was on March 5th. And the first thing we, know, we, we knew was we didn't know if any of these drugs were going to work or not. And in fact, unfortunately, we're still in that situation. So the first thing we did, uh, which was not normal practice, we called the MHRA. And that's not normal. You usually go through a process, use lots of forms, you put, and we just thought, no, look, we're going to be 100% transparent here. We're, because this epidemic was obviously, unfortunately, moving across from China to Italy and then Spain, we could see what was happening in other countries. So that's a bit unprecedented. To, and what the MHRA did was then bring other people to that conversation because we have that shared common goal, which was how do we look at that? I'll give you two other time points from there, which are astounding. So that was March 5th when we first saw the signals. Um, by April 11th, we'd partnered with Imperial College uh, and, the, uh, and the Trust, and we'd started a study there which would explore this in the intensive care setting, the setting that we thought um, the drugs would be most appropriate, not just our drug, but many drugs, which I think was another piece. It was collaboration between companies as well. And then, you, as you know, the trial that's got a lot of the news recovery coming out of Oxford with Martin Landry and Peter Horby. And that was the following week where we entered that trial. 
So I think for me, the, the lessons were actually born out of the, the work I'd learned in the NHS, which is share, be transparent. And to be honest, we were all in the same situation. And um, what I learned was there would be certain people in this time who were catalysts, who were helping this accelerate. And I'll name one, uh, his name's Jonathan Sheffield. Uh, he's, uh, he's the CEO of NIHR. Um, and what he did was look at all the different stakeholders and try and align them together. Because ultimately for us, we had to make sure that we didn't have huge amounts of off-label use because we'd have nothing to learn for. And we've all mentioned we're, we're all worried about a second peak or the second wave. How, how do we make sure that the lessons learned now are embedded? And that meant that the, the le- honestly, and I said probably a bit very openly, the levels of conversations like we were having were just completely open and sharing everything we had because at the time there was a, a single focus, which was how do we find medicines that, that will work in COVID-19? And of course, we still don't know that yet. Thank you. Um, Chris, <coughs> pardon me, we're expecting very soon a letter from uh, Sir Simon Stevens, Chief Executive of NHS England, about phase three of uh, the NHS's recovery um, uh, from uh, the peak of the pandemic. You have, and others, have expressed a desire to keep this um, approach of uh, local permission, so the ability of local organisations and local leaders to get on with things and deal with them as, as they see fit. Um, I wonder if you might expand a little bit on that in, um, in, but with particular relation to how they might work with industry and whether or not you get a sense that that approach, which does seem to be signalled to a certain degree by NHS England, is shared by uh, other players in the, in the sector, the other regulators, uh, the Care Quality Commission uh, and some of the uh, uh, medical and technical regulators that uh, that have been mentioned by uh, Hugo and Rav? Well, I, 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 if you look at that first phase, I think you do have to acknowledge that there was a particular context, which effectively was we were about to be hit by our share of the global pandemic. We needed to move with uh, incredible speed. There was a real focus on a single objective uh, and um, in a sense, the only way the NHS was going to be able to kind of meet that was to be really clear about what the objective was. And there was no kind of, in a sense, it was dead easy in the sense, because it was just basically avoid overwhelm uh, and then effectively let people get on with it. I think I, I, I would make the observation that I think the next phase is much, much more complicated because of the existence of multiple objectives. So you're clearly going to have to carry on treating a you know set of COVID patients. We're going to have to keep surge capacity aside in case there is a second spike. You've then got to restart critical services. You've then got to start you know um, uh, going through uh, and trying to reduce the uh, backlogs of demand that have built up. So we've already talked about the waiting lists. I, I think one of the real complications and by, by the way the other thing that you one of the things you're going to absolutely have to do also is effectively get uh, significantly improve infection control because it's very clear that at the moment one of the reasons one of the places where um, COVID is circulating the most is in healthcare settings. I think one of the problems we've got is it's really not clear at this point about exactly what the priorities are. So for us, I think what would be really helpful in phase three is to be very specific about what of those priorities, where we should be concentrating, and that it seems to us is national leaders' jobs. But then it's to really say, okay, let's set these objectives. Here's the priority between them. Then let you get on with it. I think there's a nervousness that some of the work that is emerging from the phase three is getting into huge amounts of kind of detail uh, from the centre and I think there's also a nervousness that again for perfectly understandable reasons the centre will want to control uh, what is going on so and, and again it, talk about not going back I think our chief executives are very clear that they want to keep that degree of local uh, power to get on with things. In terms of the regulatory structure, it seems to me there is an interesting issue here, which is philosophically, it feels to me, we had built a very complex and fairly overbearing regulatory structure with obviously kind of patient safety absolutely at its heart. But in the face of that overwhelming objective, I think we were moving an awful lot quicker. Uh, the question is, as sort of 
life settles down, uh, actually, how far are we going to go back? I don't think we're going to stay right over here in terms of, you know, the, the need to really, really set aside quite a lot of stuff in the face of uh, an overwhelming objective. But what I, I think people are really nervous about is we're not going to go right the way back over here to where we were before. So the question really is, how, how does that regime, how can we try and capture some of the spirit of that, uh, what happened in the first phase, recognising that, you know, we don't want to go right the way back over here. And just to reinforce the point, really, that there is just that opportunity, exactly as you're saying, of keeping uh, some of that real fleet, fleet, fleetedness of foot, but also the quality of the relationships that have been built up with um, commercial partners. And I thought Hugo's point was absolutely spot on, which is moving towards partnerships of value rather than just simple transactional purchase of existing products. Rob, I think you wanted to jump in. Um, yes, I mean, one of the, one of the uh, questions I was going to ask Chris was, we're seeing data sets from other countries now, uh, not being too much of a fan zone, but I, I heard you talking about Germany and the fact that they're putting aside sort of 25% of their capacity and they're having to wait. And because obviously hospitals are cordoned off into different zones, that's going to have a huge impact because um, that would mean, and, and obviously I'm one of my passions and obviously Hugo will do this is, is, is how we do research and trials. But if we've got 25% of capacity that clearly has to be ready for a second peak, um, those, those, those areas are in hospitals, which often are areas where you would be bringing patients into who may well be getting oncology treatments or other areas. One of the areas that I'm, I'm trying to work out how, to, how we can partner with uh, chief execs and other areas is um, how do you create different areas and maybe even different hospitals if for example you've got imperial and you've got hammersmith mary's trying cross how do you look at certain hospitals that may do certain things because obviously of the risk of infection spread yeah and i i my kind of sense is i mean it was really interesting the other day i was speaking to one of the very very experienced regional directors who really has been round the block and i said how's life and and they said back to me uh, the phrase they used was trying to work out what to do in this next stage and here's the key phrase is the single most complicated and difficult thing i have done in my career just in terms of because there are, and the phrase went on because there are so many unknowns many of which are not beyond you know many of which are not within your control so i do think there is a really difficult task here and if i'm honest one of the things i'm worried about is that you can already feel the mounting pressure from patients politicians single condition charities you know parliament the media saying come on nhs you know flick that switch get back to where you were before start getting through all of this uh, backlog start treating patients get those critical services up and running and the reality is when you talk to chief executives what they're saying is hey look i'm going to be 20 to 25 30 even some were saying 35 40 percent of capacity down i've not got the ppe and the testing available to do um, at the moment that i kind of need uh, i've got a bunch of very tired staff and then when you ask the question well how long before you think you can get to really really running at the kind of pace you were before recognizing it's a new new normal pace as opposed to old pace and they're saying to us 9 12 15 months so i do think there is a real issue here about how do we and again exactly you put it very well rav how do we work together in partnership to solve some of these problems like for example if you've got a diagnostic facility that's stuck in a sense right in the middle of a covid hot zone how can you create a diagnostic hub that actually um, you know you can free from some of those um, restrictions that you're inevitably going to have if you're trying to run both you know run it in the middle of a covid zone thanks you go well just building upon on the comments of, of chris and ralph eh? so w one of the um advantages we have now is that we are hit a bit later by the COVID-19 wave. So we can look at countries that are a little bit further. And it was now like mentioning uh, Germany, but there are many others and eh? Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, and so on. And I think we have to take that opportunity to see what works well over there and also where we could learn what, what you should not do. Eh? And the example of Germany has been given, but of course, a country like Germany, they had spare capacity before yeah. COVID-19. We in the NHS, we are, we are in a different situation. So we have to be even better than these countries uh, moving forward. Eh? Otherwise, we will end up with yeah huge waiting lists and, and the price to pay from this waiting list 
could be higher than the dive COVID-19 impact. Eh? So if, if patients don't get their cancer diagnosis, early treatment and, and so on, we will suffer medically, but even financially from it eh? because the cost will be uh, higher. I think in the question of uh, yeah, national guidelines, local uh, um, authority to, to move on, for me, it's a combination of both. I think, yes, we could benefit from uh, clearer national guidelines, uh, pre-post-surgical isolation before treatment, uh, track and tracing, uh, PPE, sometimes with still too complex, not efficient enough, infection prevention. From the other hand, I think it's also a learning that it's important to give that, what Chris was mentioning, I think like this, a local level authority to be agile and the situation will be very different from, from one trust to another. Eh? So it's also important that we not slow ourselves nationwide down by, by the slowest mover. Eh? Um, <clears throat> let me ask a question particularly to Hugo and Rob about how the pharmaceutical sector and the medical devices sector internationally has recognised. We've talked about how the NHS has changed, how healthcare regulators uh, have, have changed. Uh, I just, I'm interested to know how much the corporate culture within the big international um, uh, pharmaceutical medical devices um, uh, um, say, um, companies, both of which you, you work for, has changed. Has there been a recognition at the very top of your organisations that just as healthcare organisations and systems and regulators have to change, that, that, that companies need to change in the way in which they go about that, um, uh, their work? Um, uh, um, and if so, how? So what, what is, is that sort of change that you want to see from the healthcare sector and those involved in it, is that also reflected in your own corporate cultures? Uh, Ralph, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because I was talking to this exactly the same piece to, again, the MHRA and NIHR and other stakeholders, because our, our borders are somewhat different. So Hugo, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, one of the biggest devices companies in the world, and uh, Roche, oh, the same. So I'd say there were a couple of learns that we had as we went through this. Um, the first for me was pace. Um, we're actually quite slow. Hate to, probably not giving away a secret here. Things for us take time. And Chris will obviously know it's quite difficult to deal with these big organizations. The first thing is we all singly align behind the fact that um, we, the, the, a lot of this was going to be research focused because obviously there were no treatments for COVID-19. Now I'm not in, I'm not in the vaccines world, um, but obviously there were treatments for people who had COVID-19 and vaccines, but people quickly had to align, um, which meant that international companies could work across uh, borders, which is why we knew what was happening in China. And then we used that information in other countries to talk to governments very, very quickly. Um, and we shared that information. Um, now, I'm going to be a bit strange here, but um, Nazim Taleb, who talked around the black swan, has talked around how what we can have at the moment is a, a, a move to nationalism and localism. Now, we've got to be really careful with that because COVID-19, that one disease is affecting a patient in China and a patient in San Francisco. But so the treatments we create and the vaccines will have to be global. Um, so the second learn I would have is that those boundaries, even for us, where, to be honest, I probably didn't spend much time talking to my international colleagues, so our healthcare systems were different. They disappeared because suddenly I'm on a phone call with, uh, I can remember this vividly, talking to the Italian medical director at Roche. It's a heartbreaking story. And I, we, we were not quite in the early stages of the pandemic. And I rang up and I said, um, how can we help? We're hearing signals about the use of a particular drug. And she went, yeah, it's been a pretty difficult day because I've lost two of my colleagues. Um, it was two friends, actually, two of her friends, not Wash colleagues, but two of her friends. And then we realized that this is a new world. So we all had to collaborate incredibly quickly and move quickly to do this. And all, uh, that was, what was also interesting is the boundaries quickly between pharmaceutical companies dropped. So I know that's 
I know that's a bit different for your audience uh, with uh, chief execs and finance directors, but often you'll know that we don't, we don't often talk to each other very much because of competition law. But what happened was those catalysts brought us together. So NIHR brought groups together so that we would problem solve together. That, that I hope, will be maintained in the future because otherwise we'll just revert back and we'll lose that sort of working with purpose. But Hugo, intrigued what you, uh, you think about how we've all worked together. Well, the same. I think the whole outbreak of COVID-19 provoked like uh, introspection for the, uh, for the industry. And so to your point, Ralph, what is our purpose? Uh, so in, in, the, in the case of J&J, it's like uh, we have a credo. So what's on our credo? Uh, so, and then, then there are things like, hey, we, we want to use our, our scale, our capabilities for the good and uh, to change trajectory of, of health for, for humanity and if it's that well then it's now and then we have to act now and typically big organizations maybe like the NHS but certainly also like I think Raj and, and J&J are complex and slow so how can we act for the good and often it means like yeah setting the risk analysis aside and, and just act. And the examples are legal, so the, the vaccines development, which the different companies often are doing now at full risk. Typically, it would take five to 10 years. Now, uh, we started doing production, I think already like in, in February. And so uh, before knowing, before starting the clinical tests, uh, certainly in humans. Yeah? Uh, same for treatments, same for all the delivery of, of PPE material. Um, so in, in many domains, we would have internal complex decision making, which also would, would make us slow. Um, now we, it's just like, what is our purpose? How can we contribute? How can we be of value for society and, and just act? Um. Chris, um, I want to, uh, sorry, I want to start with you, Chris. I want to spend the last sort of 15 minutes or so exploring what the opportunities are, because we've talked a lot about how things have changed and we've looked, talked a lot about what the barriers uh, remain and the scale and the complexity of the challenge that's ahead of us. So let us try and spend this last sort of 10, 15 minutes focusing on the sort of uh, the practical, the, the opportunities. What and Chris, starting with you, what opportunities do you think there do remain in the area of um, industry and NHS collaboration to fix the various problems, uh, whether it be um, uh, new service models, whether it be particular challenges like new, co new cohort of COVID uh, uh, patients. We know that uh, those recovering from COVID take a long time to recover, uh, or whether it be things like the you know, the 10 million uh, waiting list, if, if that was the case. What, what are the opportunities and how are they best realised? Chris, starting with you. Well, the phrase that comes to mind is target rich environment. I mean, there's going to basically be a whole load of different things where effectively I think, you know, it feels to me like the challenge for the NHS is, feels like it's grown exponentially in terms of, uh, we were already, let's be honest about it, kind of struggling to match uh, supply and demand uh, and you know we were already having difficulty in terms of waiting this performance if you, it's a very crude measure isn't it but if you just take that, those measures both A&E waiting times but also uh, elective waiting times um, actually we were you know probably heading for some of the worst performance we've had in the decade and yet now what we've had layered on top is effectively a you know a really difficult um, you know virus and disease to deal with uh, and then you know a significant reduction in capacity so wherever you look, I think there are going to be opportunities. If I pick out three or four, um, I think Hugo's already mentioned the digital opportunity. I, I think it's very clear that you can um, uh, make significant leaps forward if we can carry on, uh, you know, the speed of development innovation, uh, digital innovation that we've had. Secondly, I, I can't really see how... Uh, we can do what we need to do without thinking very differently about how we deliver certain services. I mean, we've talked about, for example, already talked about creating diagnostic hubs. What you can uh, also see is potentially is 
um, a very different relationship between it's that we haven't really talked about it so far, but different relationship between the independent provision sector. So, you know, the Ramses, the Spires, uh, uh, the BMIs, etc. You can absolutely see it's vital that that capacity is fully and effectively utilised. Uh, the elective waiting lists, you know, um, how, how we're going to get through those at pace. But wherever you look, there are um, opportunities. I mean, I, I talked, I was talking to an ophthalmologist the other day who was talking about some fantastic, you know, um, some fantastic things they'd started to kind of pioneer in terms of uh, using working with a commercial supplier to do some very interesting stuff on AI and machine learning in terms of um, ophthalmology diagnosis and wherever you look I think there are opportunities the issue really is uh, is working out how we can get those developed at pace and then also then rolled out at scale so what is it that you're looking for from industry to help you achieve that pace and scale um, well, I, I, I thought I, st I still keep coming back to Hugo's phrase about building partnerships of value. And, I, and I, I, I'd be really interested to hear what Rav and uh, Hugo say. But the, the kind of conversations I have with the Hugos and the Ravs of the world always um, goes around. We seem to be able to make this kind of innovative partnership work in one or two or three or four or five different places. But trying to make it work across, for example, all 141 acute hospitals. Talk about pushing water uphill. It's really, really difficult and I, I i think you know there's again a very difficult issue here isn't there about each one of the 141 will quite rightly say look you know different circumstances local uh you know local leadership but i i i think the real question is how, how do we get the real closeness of relationship um of, of innovation between you know uh doing something brand new but then crucially get it picked up at speed um, across the system as a whole, but not doing that in a way in which you've got NHS England and improvement saying thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt across a hundred, you know, a whole bunch of uh, different, uh, you know, um, um, different innovations. You, you know, those own, those seems to me only work if they feel like they're owned here. So that I think for me has been the conundrum ever since I've been in the NHS about how, you know, you seem to be able to find individual examples of the kind of partnership and the kind of innovation that you're looking for, but you can never get them picked up scale consistently across the whole piece yeah well i think the point you make about when it does happen people then tend to complain about it being imposed on them yes and exactly. you, can, you can see that exactly with the use of the attend anywhere software which has swept across the the, the nhs and has you know really helped um uh, increase the amount of virtual consultation that has gone on in the NHS, but then a number of people within the service are concerned that they, you know, they didn't get any choice in the matter that they were told to 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 uh, 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 to use this software. So um, uh, let's start with Rav. Um, how? Uh, what do you see the opportunities? How do you think the sector can respond to the kind of uh, uh, challenges that that Chris went? What is the contribution that you've still got in your locker, so to speak, that yeah. you think you can? Uh, now bring forward. Rav, beginning with you. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think there's sort of three key areas for me. I think the first is there's certain things that we have expertise at. And I think the first part of this, and it crosses all of the uh, NHS trusts, is helping everything get back to a steady state as much as we can, knowing the fact that we'll have to clearly look at uh, getting ready for a second wave. Let's give you two examples here. Um, two major cancer hospitals that we partner with are so uh, are clearly behind in things like um, their their work they're doing now with data entry for trials. We have to partner on that because they're a, a month or so behind, and that's something we can help with. And those shared partnerships, but those agree shared partnerships that deliver value, I think is get, so get back to the status quo as much as we can. The second part is you mentioned it already. Um, we know that obviously these patients are being discharged, and specifically COVID nineteen. How, what, how do we build those links with social care? Um, because we know they're going back into the community, et cetera. Um, there's some work being done about following up of these patients in the NHS. How can that be done with shared value? And this will come into Hugo's world around digital, but also following these patients up. We've had, uh, unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of patients that have had basically have been trauma to their lungs. So I don't know, Chris Breitling. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Rob. I mean, that's very interesting. Explain to me the role the pharmaceutical sector, in your case, could play in helping support the NHS deal with this new cohort of COVID recovering patients. 
and this is a really good question because everyone thinks often thinks of the fact this is where we came back to trust at the beginning often people often see a transactional relationship related to a drug or related to a device but actually what we're uh, becoming are data companies and companies that can partner and look at shared value we've got infrastructure that can help the follow-up of these patients now that will then mean that a clinician, a healthcare professional, a finance director, a chief exec can then look at their data and then make choices. Now, th those are things that we have at scale. Now, if we can partner on that, and I'll give you probably an example of where the NHS has done this brilliantly over this, and it's world leading. So there is, I and mean, it's not, it's a trial that was created at Oxford. Um, so if you, the recovery trial, which is a, a, a trial from academia, has over 170 centres and over 11,000 patients in it. What I would like to see is how can you use these systems that have been set up now and move them to the future? Because I don't, if you just leave them as, as isolated hubs in time, we're not going to learn from what's happened. And that therefore means that those, those can be done in partnerships uh, with um, multiple companies. And I'm not just talking about the pharmaceutical sector as well. There could be multiple different areas of partnerships as we go forward. So I think for me, it's, it's truly understanding and building, coming back right to the beginning, having those open conversations with that single purpose in, in mind. Um, and if we can do that, we can build on some of the platforms that the UK has been world leading on um, over the last, over this incredibly difficult time through the pandemic. Thank you, Hugo. We're nearly out of time. So I am going to give you the honor of the last word. Thank you very much. So I think your original question was like, hey, with now better uh, collaborat collaboration, industry, NHS, what else should we do looking forward? And th then I would speak out maybe to zoom out. And for me, it would be work together on broader population health. I once heard uh, Lord Pryor say, well, uh, with our uh, smoking rates and obesity rates in the UK, we'll never score well on cancer rates. And, and, and here again with COVID-19, you saw that, yeah, if you have a vulnerable population with obesity, smoking, uh, and, and big BAME communities, for instance, you, you're hit harder. So I believe if we work also together more like on the broader uh, population health topics, of obesity and smoking. So prevention, but not only prevention, also early diagnosis, early treatment, then we're really gonna help, uh, well, the, the whole health situation in the UK and be better prepared for all the challenges ahead of the NHS. Thank you, Hugo. That's a very good point on which to end. So Hugo, Chris, Rav, thank you very much for your contribution. Uh, contributions uh, and thank you all um, who are watching this for watching it. I hope you found it useful. Um, please give us feedback. If you have, then it's a subject we will surely return to. Thanks very much. Cheerio.